Radio Bio is adhering to COVID-19 shelter-in-place orders, and we are committed to producing fun and educational podcasts for your enjoyment. Please excuse the difference in the audio quality of our post-production while we use online tools to safely work from home. We appreciate you tuning in. There was this moment where we were studying muscle in moths. My mentor at the time, Simon Sponberg, he's a professor at Georgia Tech now, we were hooking up electrodes into this moth, the Manduca sexta, it's a hawk moth, and he hooked up the muscles to a speaker. And so the moth is flying, and because the electrodes are picking up on the calcium signaling, it's picking up on the electricity, basically, you started hearing this like whirring sound every time the moth turned. So the moth would be turning left to right, and you started hearing this and I, I sat there and I was like, what is that? And he's like, those are the muscles firing in real time. You're listening to it. And I think I was just over the moon. I was like, wow, this is biomechanics. Um, it was a pretty fantastic moment. I think about it a lot. What you just heard was Dr. Mary Salcedo, a postdoc at Virginia Tech, describing a formative experience in their academic career. Today on Radio Bio, we dive into their research about insect wings and the journey to find the perfect insect. Don't know much biology. Hello and welcome to Radio Bio. I'm your host, Leila Wahab. And I'm Yulisa Perez-Rojas, and today we have with us Dr. Mary Salcedo, a postdoctoral researcher from Virginia Tech. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, really excited to have you on the podcast. Just to start things off, could you give our listeners a brief introduction of who you are and what you study? Yeah, I am a postdoctoral researcher at Virginia Tech in biomedical engineering and mechanics. I study insects, specifically insect wings, and I study some pretty fun stuff about insect wings as these unique living structures. So what makes the wings of insects so unique or special for study? I think it's the misconceptions that surround them. So people tend to think of insect wings as these static structures, or it's just more exoskeleton, but really we need to think of insect wings like we think of a leg or an arm. Um, We don't just like call human legs like, ah, those support the body. That's all. (laughs) Insect wings do a lot for the insect and there's a whole network of insect blood and air delivery systems and sensory systems that are in the wings. So can you tell us a little bit more about what you're currently researching about insect wings? Yeah. So right now I'm going through a lot of data that I recently collected at Argonne National Laboratory. That's a synchrotron source that's located outside of Chicago, just about 20 minutes. And it's this kilometer around particle accelerator. The first time I walked in there, it was like walking into a spaceship. It's super fun 
wires everywhere and you can do some incredible experiments. So myself and my collaborator, also my advising PI, that's the primary investigator, Jake Soha, went to Argonne to look at the insides of insect wings. Insect wings are these living tissues and you need really high resolution imaging to see inside of them. I'm working actually on analyzing thousands and thousands of images we took of these grasshopper wings. Specifically, we are looking at the North American grasshopper and the migratory grasshopper. Both are pest species in North America. We're trying to actually understand how insect blood and hemolymph and their air delivery system is connected in the wing. So you mentioned you study grasshoppers. They're tiny and they jump everywhere. How do you collect them? Do you collect them in the field or you grow them in your lab? That's a great question. So I've worked with a lot of insects. So I started graduate school thinking about dragonflies, thinking about how they catch prey and how they coordinate their flight muscles to go after different types of prey. And dragonflies are amazing and beautiful. And um, I started thinking, I was actually sitting with my um, now husband and he, he was working on bees and we were having coffee and I was supposed to be listening to him. I was supposed to be listening to whatever he was saying about science. And then all of a sudden I was like, wait, no, stop. I was like, but what about the wings? And what about how do the wings come out? Like what, how do they get to be that shape? And it started me down this process of thinking about how insects hydraulically expand their wings when they metamorphose, metamorphosize, metamorphose. You can keep that in. I think it's like sometimes science jargon is uh, jargon. Did you catch the word metamorphosis? Metamorphosis is the transformation of a young organism into an adult stage. We often use butterflies to discuss metamorphosis as a change from caterpillar to their butterfly form. However, about 80% of insects undergo metamorphosis, which takes multiple stages. In butterflies, this includes the egg, the larva, and the pupa stages before reaching adulthood. In other insects like dragonflies, they go under an egg and nymph stage before reaching adulthood. Now you know what metamorphosis is. So when they go through metamorphosis, they hydraulically expand their wings. They pump insect blood. They are inflating their air network that's in the wing. And I got really excited about that and started wandering through ponds in Massachusetts collecting dragonfly nymphs. So dragonflies actually live, can live for several years in water as aquatic nymphs. And then they crawl up a, a reed or a branch and then they turn into these beautiful flying adults. I'm definitely getting to why I said like how I get to grasshoppers. So I tried to capture this beautiful process in dragonflies for a few years and realized it's very hard to like catch that point where they go through metamorphosis. And so I actually tried luna moths for a while, those beautiful minty green moths in a fish tank at my desk. I tried pet store crickets like going weekly to the pet store to get crickets, but crickets emerge really fast and they do it like under all these different types. So you never quite see it. I tried to join up with another cricket lab. So Cassandra Extivore's lab at Harvard, she has these beautiful bigger crickets, but again, I couldn't see it. 
And then I was finally talking to a plant scientist, Dr. Missy Holbrook, and she gave me the best advice that not even insect people were giving me. She's like, Mary, you need a workhorse insect. And she's like, call USDA. So that's the U.S. Department of Agriculture and see if there's a grasshopper lab. There was. And they're like, oh, yeah, in six months, we can ship you grasshoppers. Like, you want a couple hundred? Here you go. So it started this really cool collaboration with a lab in um, Sydney, Montana, a USDA lab that started giving me grasshoppers. But before that, I was like, well, maybe I can just get some grasshoppers locally, too. And I spent a summer catching grasshoppers in like fields and bringing them back to the lab. They're actually really fun to catch as nymphs. So insects go through these growth stages. Not all insects. Some insects pupate and think of your butterfly. They metamorphose (laughs) and they come out of this chrysalis and you've got your butterfly. Other insects go through growth stages where they go from like tiny to medium to big to bigger and then adult. So grasshoppers do that and they're freaking adorable. Um, I like to call them Humpty Dumpties because you'll just be like searching in the grass and like pushing aside leaves. And then these little chonky little bugs are like trying to hop away, but they can't because their hopping legs are like not quite developed. You can snatch them up in your hand, just put them in a little cup and you take it back to a nice cage in the lab and you literally just feed them lettuce and then they will do their thing. And it's perfect and beautiful. So That's a long roundabout way to say I've worked with a lot of insects and grasshoppers won me over. I love the journey. Like, I love imagining you like wandering around these like wetlands and areas trying to find these bugs that you need. And then like this journey to finding the perfect bug, it seems like. That's a great way to call it. Maybe that's what I could call my whole research career is the journey to find the perfect bug. (laughs) And, and I told you I was interested in all of this metamorphosis, grasshoppers. This is like my love love song to them right now. When they want to emerge into that adult, they literally just turn upside down in their cage. So like they're like climbing all over their cage. And then as soon as they turn upside down and they stay there for like a minute or two, I'm like, oh, in 10 minutes, your wings are going to come out because they don't have wings before then. And so it just became a lot easier to collect data. They were so much more predictable. The only thing about all of these insects is that they like to go through metamorphosis at night. So like between midnight and like 8 a.m., 3 a.m., that was their time. They loved 3 a.m., which was terrible for me, but perfect for collecting data. Well, you mentioned this term of like hydraulic expansion of their wings, and it made me almost think of like a machine, you know, like that's when I think of like hydraulic mechanisms, I think of like pistons and like, I don't know engineering, so I don't know like a lot about that, but like, that's kind of what comes to mind. So like, is this hydraulic expansion kind of similar to how like a machine works, but like what drives them deciding to suddenly expand their wings? That's a really good comparison. So in a way, insects are like tiny machines. And the hydraulic expansion is driven by like kind of pistons. That's their flight muscles. They, they use their muscles inside of their body to kind of drive this unfurling. So an insect has these fluid systems inside of it that are quite unlike 
are vertebrate systems. They have an open circulatory system, so that means their blood is not constrained to any kind of vessel network. They have a couple hearts, they have one long tube heart, but that just kind of pushes blood over all of their tissues. On the other hand, their respiratory network, so how they deliver oxygen to the tissues, is completely different. So they have this network of what are called trachea, and these tracheal tubes get air from the sides, so these valved openings on the sides of their body called spiracles take in oxygen, and then that travels through this network of tubes and it goes directly to the tissues. So both of these systems, that fluid, that blood system, the hemolymph, and that air network actually extend into the wing. So when the insect is developed, it's going to that stage of like, I'm turning into an adult. It uses its flight muscles to start pushing blood and inflating those air tubes in the wing so that the wings start to unfurl. There's a lot of other stuff that happens too. There's lots of abdominal pumping. Sometimes there's movement. They use gravity to their advantage a lot, which is why they start out upside down. But it all results in this like pressure that pushes into the wings so they can unfold. So when you look at these wings, you're looking at images, right? How the vein and the all the little tubes connects within the wing. I don't know if this is done, but do you know if they can do some 3D printing of that and then like attach it to an insect that has a broken wing or missing a wing? Well, that's a really cool idea. So you just took it, you took it straight from the physiology to like application. Um, and that's what's really fun about this field um, is that one, People don't realize that insect wings are these like living dynamic structures. And two, we don't have a lot of data on it. So you, you mentioned images. I'm taking some of the first really like in-depth images of a continuous wing network that we've ever seen before in the world, which is exciting because it means that we can point to where all of that blood network goes, all of that trachea network we'll know exactly where it is. So I don't know. I think that there's potential if an insect wing is really damaged and we really care about that specific wing, like maybe we can try to heal it somehow. Because once a wing is damaged, it's damaged. And the life of the insect does decrease depending on the severity of the damage. So I don't know. I think anything's possible. I would love to see cool insect devices like that. And it's just this such this new kind of concept. And I keep getting more emails from people who like want to collaborate on like thinking about this. And it's just really exciting, actually. And damage is really important to think about because as soon as you disrupt that blood network and that oxygen delivery, you've removed sensory capabilities and the wing becomes stiff and brittle and it's more likely to break again. It's crazy how like dynamic, because you think of like a wing of a creature, and to me that seems like static. Like once it's there, it's there, but you make it really feel like alive and dynamic and like this thing that's constantly changing. So I think for me, that's pretty crazy. Yeah, and it is kind of changing, but it also stays the same. It's like it changes, but then it's like, I think that's why there's this perception that, the wing is just the static structure because it looks like it stays the same, but in reality, it doesn't. And I was thinking about this this morning. The wings are what 
I think, make humans so interested in insects. Like, take the wings off a monarch and what have you got? And, like, people would not be interested in this monarch migration if you didn't have the wings. And so I think as we think about our changing climate and environment and how humans affect insects, we really need to think about the wing as this living structure that changes as the environment changes and as we change it. And what does that then do to the insect behavior, especially things like pollination? You touched on this, but why do you think there's not a lot of research on insect wings? You know, we seem so enamored with them. And like you said, like with monarchs, it's what really makes them so charismatic. So why, why isn't there a lot there? I wish I could tell you. So I, I recently wrote a review on insect circulation in wings. And it kind of touched on the history of this field starting in like the 1700s, where these entomologists basically argued back and forth. And it was obviously these white, wealthy people who had the ability to spend all their time looking at bugs. And they'd be like, there's no blood in insect wings. And then another guy would be like, I found it in all of these species. And then another guy would be like, no, because you couldn't see a blood network. So as soon as you open up an insect, be like, where's the blood? Where'd it go? And it just went back and forth for a really long time until people started tracking blood cells. And they're like, there are blood cells. And then I like, (laughs) I like my old scientist voices. It talks like this. I'm an old scientist. (laughs) (laughs) But still, even then, all the way up until 1960, there was not this consensus that, oh, insect wings are these living structures. And this scientist, John Arnold, put out this really comprehensive paper where he had all of these hundreds of drawings of insect wings showing all of the circulatory map in these wings and it was still kind of ignored so I kind of wrote this review to like bring attention to that because I still talk to a lot of entomologists and they're like oh aren't the wings like hair and I'm like no it's living and I don't quite know why there's this like perception that the wings aren't just as alive as the rest of the body. It's something to unpack for sure, but it's also exciting for me as somebody who's very interested in it and trying to grab more people to be interested. Yeah, that's really interesting, especially because I haven't heard of it until I heard about you. So do you think your research and like just knowing about fly and like wings Does that play a crucial role for applying those fundamentals to regular flying things like airplanes, helicopters, flying stuff? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, we take so much inspiration from nature. I mean, I think the reasons why humans fly is we've looked up in the sky, we saw these beautiful birds flying, and we still apply new things that we learn from birds to aircraft. So insects definitely inspire, I'd say more the field of like micro aerial vehicles of smaller flying things. But um, I think by understanding this kind of living network, we could definitely apply this to new types of technology. There's even quite a few researchers at Virginia Tech who use insect inspiration to build biomedical devices. So my PI, Dr. Jake Soha, and PI, Dr. Ann Staples, they are working on systems based on an insect tracheal network, which is really cool to take vitals and things like that. 
Yeah. And so this is something that's been kind of on my mind. You you mentioned trachea. So is this similar to like, we can think of it like the trachea in humans where we take you know, take in oxygen and release carbon dioxide. Is it, it's the same thing, but just like all over an insect's wings? Am I misunderstanding like what a tracheal network is or mixing up that connection? No, it's all over the body. So it's like they have the holes in the sides of their body, these spiracles are directly connected to this airway. So I would say our tracheal system is very centralized in the, in our body. The insect tracheal system is everywhere. It's in the legs, it's in the thorax, abdomen, and then it also extends into the wings. So it's this big branching network to deliver oxygen to tissues. So, and this is something I don't think we think about often is that blood cells in insects don't deliver oxygen. They have other functions like immune response. So that's kind of unique. Let's dive in into the insect's wing system. Earlier in this episode, Dr. Salcedo discusses the insect's living properties. The insect's tracheal system is where oxygen circulates around the insect's body and through the wings. At the same time, wings can also circulate hemolymph, which is the insect's blood system. It's even more fascinating to know that wings have nerves that allow for sensory information in flight. If you're interested in this system, check out Dr. Sacero's and Dr. Socha's review on the circulation in insect wing, published in 2020. Maybe that's why it's hard to like think of the wing as living, because the systems are so different from ours. And as humans, we're always trying to find something we can relate to. For sure. And I think a lot of science is so driven by being applied to humans that when we try to move it out of that framework or just do science kind of on other organisms or something, we're always having to justify, oh, how can this be applied to humans? Or I don't know if you've run into that a lot, but. Oh, so much. So when you're seeing something for the first time and you're trying to justify its importance and people are like, but what's your hypothesis? No, I did say that in my old man scientist voice. (laughs) Um, I'm like, but I'm seeing it for the first time. There is no hypothesis yet. It's like, how, what? What's happening? Now, after having looked at this for a decade, I have hypotheses and questions for like 10 more decades. But it took time to really understand the system and just observe it for a while and then realize, wow, we don't know much about this at all. In fact, we really only know about it in two species, the mosquito and the grasshoppers I've studied. So there's so much more exploration to be done. So it's this kind of fundamental research, but I would tell you that like, I even had a crisis of conscience because I, I thought to myself six months into my postdoc, I was like, well, who really cares? Who, who really cares anyway? Like, do I care? And I had just given this talk at a symposium talk at a conference and everything, it, the conference was great. I connected with people. I was having a great time science-wise, but then I was like, but who really cares? And then in that low moment is when I suddenly saw all the questions. And I was like, well, what about our changing environment? How's that changing the wing system? Uh, What about pesticides? How's that changing the wing system? What about damage? And then all of these other questions of, well, what about predator insects versus say like our migratory monarchs? And how does flow differ there? And then, okay, now that I'm in a biomedical engineering department, 
how can all of this be used to help humanity in, say, a medical fashion? So I think science, there's this toggle between like these fundamental questions and then all of a sudden you're like, ah, the application. And sometimes they don't seem so right next to each other. I think sometimes they're years apart, decades apart. And that's, that's kind of what I've been finding for myself. Well, I can assure you, I care. And there's probably a lot of kids and adults that care. Such simple questions can really drive, like you said, you're starting this whole wings and insects. And you're just more inspiring other kids and adults to look into this. I think it's very cool. I mean, I love talking to kids about bugs, especially third graders. Like, I love talking to kids generally, but third graders are, like, so curious, and they're so much fun to talk to. Um, And, yeah, as soon as you start showing them the insides of bugs, they're like, what? So you're right. There's a lot of just simple questions to inspire people. There's so much and, like, so many more questions I wish we could talk about, but... Thank you for Dr. Salcedo for being our interviewee. We're starting to run out of time, but before we go, would you like to end our episode by sharing any words of wisdom or advice to someone thinking about pursuing a career in science? Yes, I do have advice. I was thinking about this ahead of time too. So the first piece of advice I would say is find your balance. Sometimes you'll see scientists who work a lot. Sometimes you'll see scientists who have another form of working. Uh, The most important way to be successful is to find your balance. Like for me, I wake up early now, which is new, so that I have time to drink coffee and watch cartoons before I start my day. And I make a point to always end my day around five or six. And that changes depending on an experiment or deadlines, but I have a balance and I, I stick with that. So don't let anyone guilt you and say you're not science material if your science method doesn't look like theirs. Find your balance, value your time, um, and uh, two more pieces. Find your mentor network. Like Find it now, find it this moment, find it as soon as you stop listening to this. Mentors are really what drove me into this science path. I didn't know about academia before. I didn't know about graduate school. And I'm still learning more from my mentors currently. But it was really people who listened to me, who wanted my best interest, and who showed me all of these options and were like, I can open these doors. What do you want? So find your mentors. And even if they might seem like, I can't talk to them, they're too intimidating. No, email them now. Email them Ask them now. There was one specific professor that I always thought was too cool to talk. Like, I was like, I can't talk to her. And now she's one of my fiercest supporters. And I'm so grateful to have her in my network. So it's never too late. The last bit of advice I would say, especially if you are an underrepresented student in science, maybe you are going through this like research track for the first time. Maybe you don't know anyone else no family members, no friends who've gone through it before. Protect your time and learn to say no. And what do I mean by protect your time? Is that as a diverse student, you're going to get asked to do a lot. And academia is kind of facing this whiplash in a way where they are somewhat trying to reckon 
with their decisions to ignore racism and structural inequalities. And there's a lot of burden put on black scientists, brown scientists, scientists of LGBTQIA plus identities. And it's not that the work isn't worth it, but value your time. Ask for pay. If they can't pay you, ask them to fund a trip to a conference where you can get kick-ass networking and learn to say no, because it's not that you won't be serving your community. It's that you will be valuing yourself too and your research and that you making progress and asking those questions about bugs is going to do so much or whatever your questions are. I want you to be the happiest, healthiest, successful scientist. I guess my, my advice is about time mostly and balance. Thank you so much for the inspirational message. We truly appreciate your time. If someone does want to follow your work or journey, where and how can they reach you? Yeah, um, you can find me on Twitter, um, Mary Salcedo. My website is linked there too, so I will keep things up to date as I am on the job market, hopefully going to that next step of starting the Salcedo Lab. I will definitely be posting updates there. What's your favorite insect wing? If you don't have one, now is a good time to start. We are attracted to insects with the most beautiful wings, but as we learned from Dr. Salcedo today, wings are also living, breathing structures. Wing veins contain hemolymph, or insect blood, and nerves and trachea, the air delivery system. They are more than just beautiful artwork created by nature. They are powerful and dynamic machines that help insects achieve greater heights. This episode of Radio Bio was produced by Imari Vasquez. The interviewers were Leila Wahab and Yulisa Perez Rojas. This episode was edited by Ryan Torres, and our work was done by Maya Powell. Radio Bio is produced by graduate students at the University of California, Merced. Support for Radio Bio comes from the Quantitative and Systems Biology Graduate Group, the School of Natural Sciences, the Graduate Division, and the University Friends Circle at UC Merced. You can help support Radio Bio's mission of increasing scientific literacy in California's Central Valley and beyond by donating at giving.ucmerced.edu slash radiobio. Find out more about our mission, events, and podcast at www.radiobio.net.